podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. I'm Paul Amory, the editor of New Money Review. Money is a form of communication, like writing, music and art. It goes back to the origins of human history. And now, money is changing fast, in a way that will affect all of us. New types of money arrive out of nowhere, like Bitcoin. We now make payments with our phones, not with notes and coins. But as payments get faster, cheaper and digital, other aspects of money become more complex. Anyone reliant on cash is at risk of being excluded from the new financial system. Digital money is easily traceable, so who gets to monitor what we spend? There's increasing concern about what happens to our payments data, which are the most valuable digital records of all. In some areas of money, criminals and fraudsters are having the time of their lives. New and more inventive scams arrive by the week. What is the role of governments and central banks in this new world? And what about the big tech firms like Google, Apple, Facebook and the Chinese tech giants who are moving quickly into money? The New Money Review podcast takes a big picture look at all these trends and at their impact on society. It's not just money that's changing, but technology, finance, law, government and culture with it. Each episode we interview a leading expert on one or more of these topics. By listening to the podcast, you can stay up to date with what's going on in this crucial area. If you enjoy this New Money Review podcast, why not stay in touch with our future releases? You can subscribe at iTunes, Spotify or your usual podcast provider. My guest on this episode of the podcast is economist Peter Weertz. Peter, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you please start by telling listeners a bit about yourself, your background and your area of work? Yeah, thank you, Paul. Yeah, so I'm a senior economist in the Dutch Central Bank. I'm also an associate professor of finance at VU University in Amsterdam. And so my current work at the Central Bank is mainly on central bank digital currencies. So I'm part of the Euro System Project investigation phase, which has just started actually last Friday. And I'm also a main author of our own report in the Dutch Central Bank that we released in 2020. And at the university, I look at financial regulation. So I'm, I give a course to, uh, to master students. And actually in this work for today on the role of Bank of Amsterdam, what I found interesting is actually that the two perspectives actually come quite close together. And that's also what I like about the topic so much. Before we talk a bit about financial history and its relevance to stable coins, I'd like to ask you to um, explain what you see money uh, as what is money in the digital age? Because obviously we're, we're living through a period of quite a intensive experimentation with money and new forms of money. So, what, what you know, just to recap from a, your perspective, you know, what is money these days? Yeah, thank you, Paul. That's a very good question. By the way, everything I say is uh, subject to the usual disclaimer, so it's my personal view. And starting with your question, then so. Economists define money with respect to the functions it fulfills. And in the digital age, I think it's a matter of degree. So to what degree will cryptos and stable coins become generally accepted means of payments? Uh, to what extent could they function as a unit of account in a store of value? And so I think it's not a black and white answer, but it, it's, it's, it varies. And that also actually is uh, important for the paper because the key underlying question is the scenario that we move from crypto being used in niche markets to stable coins and then the prospect or scenario, and we don't know if it's going to happen, 
that they could be used, uh, that there could be mass adoption as a user, as a means of payment. And that would really change the role of cryptos in the, in the, in the monetary system, because then that would come like real money, you could say. Right. So that, so the, the, the definitions are, uh, evolving constantly. Yeah, and it's it's not a. At the end of the day, it's the user that determines whether something is used as money. It's a social convention. Yeah. So um, I think last year the Bank for International Settlements published uh, a paper um, suggesting that stable coins could grow by several orders of magnitude. That the use could expand massively over coming years. And in November last year, you you published a working paper with two colleagues on the role of the Bank of Amsterdam. In, in history and why you saw um, that uh, particular um, uh, period in history when the Bank of Amsterdam flourished, which I think was the uh, 17th and 18th centuries, as particularly relevant for uh, the current debate about stablecoins. Could you explain to listeners you know, why you saw that, uh, that historical um, episode as relevant to the modern day? Yeah, so it's a joint paper with uh, John Frost and Yun Shin, indeed from the, from the BIS. And so... Obviously, the technical uh, uh, possibilities have changed a lot, but what we observe is that the underlying incentives, they are still relevant, you know, and that's also the uh, kind of topic of uh, economics. And so we think that this period in history is is very useful because it illustrates the underlying incentives that may be of use for the modern day experience. Okay, so could you, I mean, could, for, for listeners who, who may not be familiar with the Bank of Amsterdam's importance in financial history, could you tell uh, them a little bit, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, what it was and how it functioned? Yeah, so, so it, it was, uh, it came to exist in 1609. And the, the context at the time was one of what was called confusion of coin. So the provinces in the Netherlands, but also internationally, they, a lot of different coins were issued. And uh, so the value was fluctuating, a bit like crypto values today are fluctuating. So that hindered actually the use of the of money as a means of payment. And the Bank of Amsterdam stepped in to uh, to stabilize that value and to give trust in the in the in the, in the purchasing power basically. And they did that by checking the value of the coins. So they said, look, you can bring your silver and uh, gold coins to us. We will check it, and then there, so those were gilder coins. You could say current gilders. They checked the value, and then you, you got like a, a deposit at the bank, which was like a wholesale deposit because this was made for the large merchants, and that actually stabilized the value of the of the gilder. And then actually the merchants they started uh, settling their wholesale payments through the Bank of Amsterdam, and that ultimately gave rise to a lot of trust. And also led over time that the uh, gilder became the dominant international currency until it was replaced by the by the pound. And this model it started with 100% backing, and that's exactly uh, the similarity to today's discussion. Because similarly as today, to 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 use it as a means of payment, if you pay, you want to have this no questions asked. That was a term used by the recent paper by Gorton and Zeng. And that could be provided by an institution with a backing from the government. In this case, it was the, the town of Amsterdam. So, you know, in today's times, it's not really like the state, but it went into that direction. And that worked for a very long time. However, over time, you see that the stablecoin model, if I could call it like that, by itself was not so stable in terms of governance. 
and in terms of the roles that the Bank of Amsterdam had to fulfill in the center of the payment system. So, it's right. the- Peter, let me stop you there for a second because before we get on to how the, how the system um, eventually went wrong, I'd like to ask you just, so just to reiterate the, the, in 17th century Amsterdam or 17th century Holland, one merchant, rather than paying gold or silver coins to another merchant, could basically um, transfer uh, an entry in the account of the Bank of Amsterdam or the ledger of the Bank of Amsterdam to another merchant in settlement of some trading activity. And Absolutely. that was regarded as good yeah. as good money by, yeah. by pretty much everybody. And that was backed by actual gold and actual silver held by the Bank of Amsterdam yeah. in its vaults. Yeah, that's that's exactly the, uh, right. And, yeah. and, and there's a quite a famous quote from Adam Smith, uh, kind of uh, looking at this and, and kind of marveling at how widely accepted this money was, in fact, around the world. Yeah. So I have a quote here, and it says, At Amsterdam, however, no point of faith is better established than that for every guilder circulated as bank money, there is a correspondent guilder in gold or silver to be found in the treasure of the bank, in wealth of nations. Seven, right. Seven, six, right. So, the, and, the, and in many ways, this was the, the Bank of Amsterdam was the, the prototype for the modern central bank, which is, which is there as the kind of the guarantor of payments in, in the, the settlement system. Yeah, so so it's part of this discussion, and since it was uh, it was established for its role in the payment system, there are several authors that say that actually the, the history of central banking started in the payment system. And there's a discussion with whether it would be used also for military financing as the Bank of England, but that's basically a separate discussion. But indeed, you can see the start of central banking here. But the important thing is, it was not a central bank immediately. It sounded like this kind of stable coin, as we could call it today. Yeah. And only over time, and very gradually, uh, it, it became a central bank. And actually, the Bank of Amsterdam went broke first. So it wasn't the Bank of Amsterdam, but it was ultimately the Dutch central bank then in 1814. Right. But, but uh, just staying with the, the, you know, the original, um, let's call it stable coin arrangement of the Bank of Amsterdam, there's a. It was a curious. What I found a curious um, um, relationship um, between the value of the Bank of Amsterdam money and the underlying gold and silver holdings in its vault. So it it, it actually Bank of Amsterdam money traded at, at a slight premium for most of the 18th century to its uh, underlying gold and silver uh, holdings, which which you call the Dutch agio. I think. What, what, yeah. what was the what was the cause of that? Yes, but, yeah, indeed. So the, the agio measures the value uh, relative to current guilders, so the coins, and that was usually around 5%, so higher for uh, deposit money at the Bank of Amsterdam. And uh, the, the short way to explain this is for the convenience that you could settle in yeah. uh, central bank monies and, with, and, and it was like credit risk-free. Uh, so the convenience. And nowadays, I think we would call it the convenience yield. So the most liquid and safe asset. Okay. So so um, what over time um, went wrong with the Bank of Amsterdam's model? Yeah. So uh, first of all, it went very well actually, and for a very long time. So it functioned. It, the, the stablecoin arrangement they, it, it did bring this kind of a role in the payment system. But then if you have this role in the center of the payment system, then to, to, to smoothen the wholesale settlement, just like modern central banks, there was a demand for credit. Now, this was first like short-term credit to the East India Company mostly. And so it remained very small. So it didn't really hurt the credibility. 
Over time, the Bank of Amsterdam also started to take on more uh, functions as a central bank. And so basically after it had introduced fiat money, which is a separate story, and maybe we can go into detail later, because then they said, look, you know, you cannot have full redeemability anymore after there had been a run. Um, that allowed the bank to start giving credit. And as I said, uh, for almost all its history, that was mainly related to its payment function, so uh, to, to facilitate payment flows. However, after the shocks of the Fourth Anglo-Dutch War, 1780, around that time, that, that was such a big external shock, comparable to shocks we have seen uh, like in recent uh, times, like the COVID or the global financial crisis, then it started uh, acting secondary and like another central bank function as we see it now, which is a lender of last resort. But then the credit was so much and the, the East India Company could not repay it. And moreover, the fiscal backing of the uh, commune of Amsterdam was not sufficient. Uh, so that ultimately led to the, the failure of the Bank of Amsterdam. Yeah, but and then, there's a very nice chart in your... Sorry to interrupt you, Peter, but there's yeah, a, I just fine. wanted to say there's a very nice uh, chart in your... Uh, paper about, which shows the composition of the Bank of Amsterdam's assets over 200 years. And for the, most of the first 100, 150 years of its existence, uh, the uh, assets were you know, basically completely in, in gold and silver. But then over time, uh, a greater proportion of debt of the East India Company started to creep into that asset backing. Yeah. And then uh, also some debt from the Amsterdam Town Treasury and the Loan Chamber. And, and, and towards the end, Obviously, that the, the the greater composition of debt uh, started to you know reduce confidence in the Bank of Amsterdam's yeah. money, uh, as you as you just described. Um, you know that, that clearly has. I mean, there's a very obvious relevance for for current some of the current stablecoin discussions because there's been a, a you know a lot of interest in the asset backing of some of the stablecoins. So I guess this is your this, this brings brings me to a question on on governance. You know what uh, what you know, what went right in the, with the way the Bank of Amsterdam was governed and what went wrong? Yeah, so the, what went right is that the governance was very strong from the beginning. And what went wrong is ultimately it was not strong enough. And we have a story in our paper that apparently the age of the commissioners that was supposed to guard the treasure gradually yeah. fell and they just couldn't counteract anymore strongly enough the, the pressure from the, for, for, for giving out loans. And obviously, that pressure becomes much bigger when you have such a big external shock that when your country is at war. So then, uh, then basically, the governance broke down. And I believe that that's also the link with financial regulation, because to me, it looks very much like an investment fund. If you look at the investment fund regulation, you have also important governance uh, requirements. And underlying, there is a, a conflict of interest between the manager of the funds and the owner. So there's a separation and that gives about a conflict. And I think it's a, it's a similar thing here. And even more so given the promise to have a stable value, which makes it a debt-like claim. So, you know, you, you probably remember the breaking the buck uh, episode after the financial crisis with the money market funds. Yes. Yes. I just, I mean, I, I would like to pick up on that point about the, the governance of the, the Bank of Amsterdam. And I'm just reading from your paper. I was, I was very struck by the, uh, you know, the description you give of how, how the governance, uh, operated in practice. So you, you and your colleagues, uh, write that, um, although the Bank of Amsterdam was fully owned by the city of Amsterdam, 
Uh, it had a governance structure made up of three and then the later four commissioners who were usually merchants or current or former members of the city council. And they were each appointed for one year at a time, I guess, as a, as a way of um, you know, preventing um, corruption or you know, crony relationships. And, and yeah. that, that seemed to work well for, for, for some time. But then, you, as, you point, as you just mentioned, the, 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 during the, the second half of the 18th century, the average age of the commissioners fell from an 46 years to 33. So the, uh, you know, you, you're, you're basically arguing that they, they were less able to withstand political pressures as a, as a result of their relative inexperience. Yeah, absolutely. And also rereading the paper, I think there's another lesson which we haven't even mentioned because there was a run in 1672 also on the Bank of Amsterdam when it still had full backing. So that's like yeah. what would happen if there's a run on a stable coin when the assets are there? So the assets right. fell at that time from eight to, I think it was two million, and uh, but they were there. So that served to increase the credibility of the Bank of Amsterdam. However, it also was a driving force for changing the governance model because obviously it's not very convenient if your balance sheet is at risk. And so what they did is they increased the fees for taking out the money. Right. Uh, but by doing that, actually the inflows, they were much lower. And that then yes. gave rise to a new model where that was actually called by Quinn and Roberts in the range of papers, the introduction of fiat money in 1683. If yes. you want to, we could go with that separately, but I'll stop here for now. No, that's very that's very interesting. And, and I mean, I, I guess that uh, that withdrawal fee is a, is a, is a, a very similar uh, concept to uh, the way investment funds are, are managed, where uh, in most jurisdictions that the, the rules allow the operators of funds to to put gates on the uh, on absolutely. outflows to to prevent a run, so that's absolutely. a similar, yeah, a similar, absolutely. similar idea. And it's also so. I've, thanks for making that point. And I also think that it's for the stable coins of interest because it's not just looking at the backing. You should also look: is there full redeemability one on one? And if so, yeah. what is the fee? And actually, that's not guaranteed by uh, all stablecoin providers to have that. I mean, as we as it would be. If it would be e-money, which is a separately regulated form of money, then there should always be full backing and one-on-one -on -one redeemability. Yes. Yes. So let's let's talk a bit about the modern version of uh, of stable coins, which are you know a fascinating topic, at least to me. Uh, they've grown enormously in the last few years, and you know although there's been some controversy about the asset backing of certain stable coins, or even the the way other stable coins operate, some of the the um, mechanisms behind the algorithmic stablecoins are quite complex for anybody to understand. But let's talk about asset backing first. You know, in particular, you probably won't want to comment on individual stablecoins, but I mean, we all know that uh, there's been a debate about Tether's asset backing, the largest uh, stablecoin. And yet, you know, as far as we can see, despite it, some instability in its early days, Tether has been, you know, continuing to operate at a, you know, one-to-one -one, um, uh, peg to its... Uh, supposed dollar value for the last few years and it's, and it's and it's been growing quite substantially so you know what what do you think are the key lessons as far as governance are concerned for the the modern stable coins yeah so the uh, so those lessons apply as we just said you have to look at the incentives and there is a separation of ownership and management so you should look at i think what what are the incentives now, if you give yeah. a promise as a stable coin that you're going to have full backing, 
in safe, highly liquid assets, that means that you don't have a high return necessarily. So that there, there is an, an incentive to increase the return by decreasing the backing or, or having more risky assets. But then that may actually put the, the stable value at risk. So I see those two tendencies also from our paper that the, the first one is like the role, the pressure to lend inside that system. And the second yeah. one is the profit-making um, uh, uh, incentive. Yeah. Now, then you need regulation. And we know that, for example, from investment funds. But if you then you get a whole range of regulatory options. And uh, some of them have already been issued by the European Commission in the so-called MECAR uh, proposal, Marketing Crypto Asset Regulation. But for me, conceptually, it's important to notice that there is a whole range of trade-offs between how, how strongly do you regulate them and what does it do with innovation. Yeah. And, uh, so the, the strictest form is, of course, not to allow it and to, to, to put a ban. I mean, that would probably not be possible. But then also you don't allow the innovation. And the lightest is just only look at anti-money laundering. And there are a range of options in between. And I think there is the kind of debate uh, that should be kind of conducted now. Right. So I guess in, in the context of the Bank, uh, of Bank of Amsterdam's history, this is the same debate as, as took place about whether um, it should operate uh, as a kind of rigid, fully backed uh, system with, with exactly the same amount of gold and silver and reserve as the amount of money in issue, or whether there should be some a little bit of flexibility to allow for some short-term lending within the system, some short-term credit. And that was, as you, I think you mentioned earlier, that that was introduced to, to help the seasonal uh, demands for credit from, um, from the, the, the ships of the, or from the Dutch East India Company, which had ships arriving and departing from Holland uh, at different times of the year. Yeah, and, and that's also what central banks combine in the settlement system, the safest form of money, but also the liquidity. Uh, and that makes it a very efficient system in a way. Yeah. And trying to recreate that with 100% backing in private assets, sort of outside, the, you know, like more in private uh, custodians, is, is, not, is not like uh, uh, immediately logical. Yeah. Yeah, um, but uh, you know, the, so I mean, how do you think this ad- debate is going to evolve? I, I, I noticed that this morning the the uh, BIS and the and IOSCO, the International Organization of Securities Commissions, has has issued a paper about um, applying the principles for financial market infrastructures that were introduced after the financial crisis to <clears throat> to systemically important stablecoins. They're basically saying, you know, if you want to be a a large stablecoin, you have to follow the rules, the same kinds of rules as if you're a you know, securities depository or a clearinghouse or uh, another important financial market infrastructure. How, you know, how do you think this is going to work? Do you think that there's a, a risk that this um, you know, draws a bigger dividing line between the regulated part of the market and, and the, the totally kind of Black market stablecoins, or you know, what, what's what do you think is the likely evolution of um, of the market from here? Yeah, what what, what I noticed that uh, of course crypto started out as unregulated, and that that yeah. you can maintain that as long as it, if it remains small. But the bigger it becomes, the more it's more like like an ordinary financial market and maybe even yeah. form of money. 
So it's, it's, it's only natural that the regulation will start to apply because the risks are there. And that's what we can also see in the market. So it started with AML, anti-money laundering and, uh, uh, provisions. Then there was the discussion with the Financial Stability Board on financial stability risks. Then you can see now a discussion on uh, consumer protection and, and uh, orderly market functioning. Uh, and, and then there is the role, indeed, of the systemically important uh, financial market infrastructures for which, for all of that, there are rules. So as soon as you're going to fulfill such a function, I think it's entirely logical to apply the same risks, sorry, the same rules that apply elsewhere. Right. I, I mean, and it's clear, you know, clearly for a lot of the stable coins that have grown up from within the cryptocurrency market, you know, there's, there is miles for them to go to, to meet those kinds of standards. They, you know, they'd have to completely rethink the way they operate or, or even stop. Yeah. 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 Yeah, for the regulators, it's also a time to to act quickly in a way to uh, to to bring the regulation uh, to create a level playing field. I would say. Yeah, yeah, and, and and how big a challenge is that? You know, to create a level playing field because clearly you've got what you might call stable coins in different parts of the financial system. You've got it within. You've got stable coins, which are money market funds within the asset management sector. You've got stable coins that are. Have developed out of the cryptocurrency market. You've got e-money, which I guess is something quite similar. These are you've got the maybe a slightly different setup in the in the US. Um, these are all kind of notionally the same thing, but they're operating with different rules. That must be a massive challenge to bring all these things together. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, and the, the, the current times are very interesting because this idea of currency competition that I started with, so the currency competition with coins in Amsterdam 1600 was one example. Then there was a currency competition with banknotes in the 1800s. Well, that played out by giving central banks the banknote monopoly, and there was no private issuance anymore of banknotes. And so underlying this discussion is how will it evolve this time? And that's going to happen a bit more gradually but there's yes. certainly on the one end a big role for regulation in that. What do we want to allow and what not? So a balance between innovation and the risks. And that balance could be different than in previous history, uh, periods in history. On the yes. other hand, uh, developing central bank digital currency. Yes. So, I mean, you mentioned, that, you mentioned that central banks took over the issuance of banknotes and in many countries were given monopolies for doing so. But there are some exceptions to those rules, aren't they? To that rule, rather. Um in Scotland, for example, uh, private banks can, you know, were allowed to continue issuing uh, banknotes and, and, and continue to do so. And um, you know, I've spoken to uh, early this year on the podcast to uh, George Selgin, who says that a lot of the uh, good monetary innovations have come from the private sector and should be allowed to con continue to do so. So you know, what's, what's your argument uh, in response to that? Yeah, so I fully agree. Indeed, it's, it's getting the balance right. And that's why I, I, I see kind of a range of options that there are different parts of this trade-off. And also, indeed, Sweden is another example where apparently it worked very well for quite a long time because there was more implicit backing of the state. So you have to look yes. at the details of the case to see what worked and what didn't. And certainly not to say, you know, <laughs> we're going to ban everything because you also want innovation. I, I fully agree with that. Um, yeah, so basically that's going to be my next paper with two co-authors we're working on now, sort of an integrated approach. 
Yes. Okay. Well, that's very. I mean, look, I look forward to reading that. It's a very, very interesting topic. I mean, do you think looking forward, maybe ten or twenty years, um, as the younger generation gets used to exchanging stable coins on mobile phones, and, uh, and, and would you think you know all money will become uh, stable coins from the perspective of the general public? Well, that's that remains to be seen. Of course, uh, what I hear a lot is that people saying that they understand that stablecoins unregulated, that it's not necessarily uh, going to work very well. And so I also see demand just like for the safest form of public money, you know? So yes, it really comes up to what the, the, the user is going to do. And for me, that's a big question mark because a lot of these discussions go from the scenario that it will be adopted on a large scale as a means of payment. And if so, the network effects kick in on the platforms and then indeed it could be very large. But whether that really happens remains to be seen. And perhaps that also depends on the regulation. You know, if at some point uh, it's the regulation is really good and you can really trust it, and I don't know if that's going to happen, uh, then that would be different than if it stays unregulated. So, I really, I really don't know, actually, to be honest, how this is going to play out. I could give, right. have some thoughts, but um, yeah, there are scenarios, I would say. Right, right. And, and what about? I mean, obviously, you're a, you're a central banker, and you, you know, you've you've argued for the role of central banks in their, um, you know, as issuers of money, but also as in their function as lenders of last resort when there's a crisis. And in your in a recent um, uh, presentation you've given, you pointed out the similarities between what happened to the Bank of Amsterdam in the 18th century in the Panic of 1763 and the similarities between that event and what we saw during the financial crisis of 2008 and 2020. So that, that's a kind of an argument for the, for the role of the central bank to help step in and stabilize things when there's a panic. But, you know, at what point could a central bank, um, uh, you know, that loses public trust, um, you know, get things wrong. I mean, how do we how do we make sure that you know that that they don't the central bank doesn't go too far in yeah. let's say lending lending irresponsibly and 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 um, you know causing the, there to be a loss of confidence in in money as a result. Yeah. So the after the story of the Bank of Amsterdam went down, I, I believe because the governance framework was not yet uh, fully developed. And that, that, of course, has been a, a kind of changes over the past century as well to make sure that the central banks are in, independent from government pressure, that they have price stability or like a trade-off with economic growth as their main objective, that they really look at the stability of the system and the public interest and not to have a private profit-making motive. And by the way, coincidentally, that's also what we did a consumer survey. That's also what what people indicated what they would like about CBDC. That's an that's a institution issuing it that doesn't have a, it's, yeah. it's guided by public uh, public interest. And can central banks push it too far? Yes, in theory, they could. And uh, for, to, to answer that question very, from a very personal perspective, I started actually in fiscal policy, my PhD is on fiscal policy. So I was used to the situation where there are budget deficits and debt on the, on the, on the fiscal side and, and central banks contribute profits. But the, the, the history of the Bank of Amsterdam showed to me that central banks can also make losses. And then it's the opposite, actually. Then it comes down to the fiscal backing of the state. 
Yeah. And it's up it's to the central banks indeed to manage this very prudently from the public interest. And I think that's what everybody tries to do. Yeah. So the design of the relationship between the state and the central bank and the arrangements, the governance arrangements between the two are really important. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, so and it just comes finally, down yeah. Sorry, it comes down to incentives again. Yeah, and I just I wanted to ask you uh, finally to comment a bit about the you know you you mentioned your work within the euro system, um, the the, the uh, European Central Bank and the EU as a whole is is clearly pushing forward with uh, plans for a central bank digital currency. You know how how, how important is that on the uh, on the agenda of uh, European policymakers? I think that's very high on the agenda and uh, the fact that it's now an official project of the Euro system that I started last Friday, a project investigation phase of two years where all design questions will be addressed. Um, that, that shows how high it is on the agenda and also on the political side, it's very high on the agenda. So there are a lot of stakeholder discussions, of course, including with, with the politics, but also with the users and with the sector. So it, it's, it's really a big project now and uh, the capacity has increased a lot. Right. So the, the way it will go is two years investigation phase and then a new decision to be made whether a realization phase will follow. And that, that's what we're going to see at that point. Right. Okay. Well, thanks for explaining that. It sounds as though stable coins and uh, central bank digital currencies, central bank stable coins are going to be a very big topic for the coming decades and going to keep us all busy. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Peter, thank you very much for taking the time to chat to me. It's been a very interesting discussion. Uh, thank you for having me on the show. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support our work, you can do so via Patreon or using cryptocurrency. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website. Finally, please join us soon for our next episode.